We're taking a break this week and sharing with you our Patreon-exclusive roundtable review of the Disney Plus show Andor. This has been an amazing year for all of us, and we could not have done it without the support of our patrons and our listening audience. We will be back in the new year with fresh content and exciting updates. From all of us at Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and Shoal of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, happy holidays and Merry Christmas. This is Framerate, brought to you by Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Framerate, our Patreon-exclusive film review show. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by Patrick, Christian, Andy, and Micah. Hey, everyone. How are you guys doing? Hi. Hey, hey. doing pretty well. I like how our intros are becoming less formal as time goes on. Like, do you notice how... Uh. In the early years, it was like, I am the host and founder, J.M. I never Prater. said that. I never said that. <laughs> you the did. seventh. You did. <laughs> no, it was I like all did. this, like, like of Chicago by way of Los Angeles. <laughs> and it's like, and then gradually now we're dropping last names from it. Now it's just, eventually it's just going to be like, hey, 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 hey. hi, hi. <laughs> I always feel like the op- openings of shows are, remind me of like, like a PBS, like those Saturday Night Live PBS shows. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it does have that Shwitty vibe. Balls. Shwitty balls. Well, today, oh tonight, we are here to talk about Andor, the Disney Plus series that has been rocking all of our worlds. And I'm excited to talk about it. There's a lot to discuss. So I don't really know how we should do this. But I mean, I guess maybe we could start with like, there's been other Star Wars series. You know, we have mandalorian then we had boba fett or as i call it boba fart um and then (laughs) and then we had obi-wan kenobi so that was kind of like the pregame for andor and by the time obi-wan kenobi that show was ended i was just like i don't know i don't know but i was hopeful that andor was going to be the show for me based off the trailers based off what i was seeing i was like oh my god i think that this is it and it ended up being it so i'm curious where how everyone else kind of walked into Andor. Well, Andor was announced way, way back um, after Mandalorian first came out. And so when we got the Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan, I was just like, come on, this isn't what I want. I want that thing you, not only did they announce it and I was excited because Rogue One is my favorite Star Wars movie, but they gave us a little behind the scenes teaser with Diego Luna talking about the sets and showing some of the costumes and stuff a year before like where is this show you clearly are making it and obviously the pandemic happened or whatever but everything after that felt like um like filler like they were just trying to put something out there because you know disney plus needs to constantly have fresh content to keep you engaged or keep your, your money pouring in but i just and maybe this is what was going on but Andor absolutely was worth the wait i'm glad that they took the time that they did so, but that's a little, little backstory there. Yeah. When they made the announcement, um, I believe they announced several shows, right? All at once. Or am I wrong? Was they, it the they day announced when like they... 300 things at the same yes. time. I think yeah. that was shows, the next year. Video that games, was, movies. That was, that was a year later. That's oh, that was, was a year later. later. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah. And it was yes. like, you had like 15 titles up on the screen or something. That was like crazy. Right. X-Wings. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, you're right. You're right. Because they did announce Andor and I was waiting for it at, in that slew, that onslaught that they were mentioning. Um, and my ears like perked up like just perked up when I heard about that. Cause like you, I adore Rogue One. Um, and I knew that was the one I was waiting for. Um, so same. And I was not disappointed as we will be discussing. It's one of my favorite things to come out in years. Same. I mean, I, 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 I grew up on Star Wars. I've said that before. I'm sure somewhere on one of these podcasts I've been on. Um, but I mean, when Mandalorian came out, I woke up a little bit again because um, not to say that I didn't enjoy the newer trilogy. I enjoyed them. They did not change my life in the way that I wanted them to. So then Mandalorian comes out and I'm I'm like, okay, this this feels like Star Wars, but it's innovative. It's different. And I can't predict where it's going. That's exciting. And then like the Book of Boba Fett came out. And I was super disappointed, to be totally honest, super disappointed. Um, I don't know why they're trying to make all these bad guys into good guys right now or like pull the veil off of Boba Fett. He's supposed to be like a mystery. That's what's so terrifying about him. Anyway, um, so I I I was disappointed with that. I was honestly disappointed with Obi-Wan, um, with Kenobi. Um, just I don't know. It just didn't feel like it had the weight that it was supposed to have. And like everyone has been saying before, Rogue One was something so special that when it came out, I was like, my breath was taken away. So I had a lot of high hopes for Andor and I'm remembering this now, Patrick, but I might, I I might be like giving myself too much credit here, but I feel like after we saw Rogue One, I said, I would watch a whole movie about Cassian because he is. You did say that. Didn't I say that? Okay. You did. Yeah. And I agreed with you, but you did say it first. I did say it first. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I was like, I would watch a whole movie about Cassian because he is so cool. I want to know where he's from and what happened to him to make him the way that he is at the beginning of Rogue One and to know more so that the his arc in Rogue One means more. And that's exactly what we get with this series. It was phenomenal. It like, it was probably the best thing that Star Wars has put out like since the original trilogy. I mean, it was, I think that and Rogue One, they're just so high up for me on the, on the tiers of Star Wars now that I'm, I'm just so pleased with what they gave us. And you're, you guys are right. It was so worth the wait. Yeah, I, I knew it was going to be promising largely because of Tony Gilroy's involvement because I have so so much respect for him and especially for Rogue One, which he did, of course, with Ryan Johnson, which is just a towering achievement in Star Wars. And I think something that's interesting... Did I say the wrong director? Yeah. Gareth Edwards. Uh, Gareth Edwards, <laughs> okay. Ryan Johnson. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I knew something came out wrong, but I didn't know what, what part it was. Um, you, which he did with Gareth Edwards, of course, which is just an incredible film and likewise was blown away by it. And what I love about Rogue One and Andor is that, I mean, the thing that everybody always says about it, right, is that it's not 
beholden to all these other things. It has a lot of latitude to do its own storytelling and its own character development, which has been something that we've all been kind of fed up with with Star Wars for a very long time because it, it's like, is there one family in this whole fucking galaxy that everything has to always revolve? Like it, like it drives all of us crazy. And I think with the, um, you know, so I, I came of age with the with the prequel trilogy, you know, as a kid. That was really kind of the, those were the movies that I got to see in theaters and and they were they were really bad. And uh, so when the sequel trilogy came out, it was I was in a different place because for one thing I was an adult, but I also had kids of my own to bring. And so a lot of my appreciation for the sequels, which is very uneven because I don't on the whole like them that much. But a lot of the things that I like about them are largely the things that are easy to like, like the nostalgia, the fact that my kids enjoy it, the fact that we got to have all these new action figures and, you know, play pretend in the backyard. Those are the things that I like, but they weren't the things that like felt compelling to me as far as storytelling. They were just the things that were kind of comfortable to go to bed dreaming about, right? And so like the sequels are kind of coming out and blah, 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 blah. And then Rogue One happens and it's this like shot in the arm of like, oh my God, that's right. Like there is a whole galaxy out there that does still have storytelling in it. For a lot of us, of course, we've gotten a lot of that storytelling through the expanded universe, which has been, you know, going bonkers for 40 something years now. Um, a character that I particularly love from the expanded universe who has been written about extensively is Boba Fett. And it really is going, saying a lot that the Boba Fett series not only disappointed me, but that we didn't finish it because it was so bad. Like that to me, I was like, you have like my, the three things that I need in Star Wars. You have a fucking Rancor, you have Boba Fett, you have Tatooine, these things that like should be really perfect for me as a, as a Star Wars fan. And like, they, they all fell so flat. And I was like, oh man, maybe I'm just like done with this. Fran Honestly, I was like, maybe I'm done with this franchise. Also just the amount of arguing, the amount of fighting, the amount of complaining, the amount of just getting into endless arguments, the amount of uh, Jamie doing negative posts before I have a chance to see a movie on Facebook. The, the, the amount of things that just sort of added up over the years to this accreted sense of Star Wars is more stressful than it is enjoyable for me at this point. So I'm gonna kind of step away from it. Uh, Obi-Wan thought it was fucking garbage. We didn't finish that one either. And I was like, you know what? Mandalorian was amazing. I love Mandalorian. I can just sort of take that. And that was a nice nostalgia hit as well, but it was also really good. And then Andor, of course, like ended up coming out and it was this incredibly new vision into Star Wars from such an adult perspective where it was so complicated, almost too complicated. I mean, I, this is really something that takes multiple viewings, I think, to get a lot of the nuance out of. Like, I mean, we were really on the edge of our seat, not for the least of which, because it's there's so much going on the whole time structurally. It's such a complicated, complicated story, but in the best way possible, because it is at its heart a spy espionage story, right? Um, there's just a lot of details to track, a lot of characters to track, a lot of storylines that intersect in these really unexpected ways. And everybody's fucking whispering the whole time. So you can't even tell what they're saying. And you have to like literally listen, like lean in closer to the television to like capture all the details so that by the time you hit episode five and things start to accelerate into the Star Wars kind of sense that we feel where this we get this sort of epic feel coming back into it. It is like the most just exhilarating storytelling experience I've had in forever. And it is my favorite Star Wars property of all time which i thought would be impossible to, for anything to ever top empire and this did for me after a lot of closes to the, like you know mandalorian came out it's like oh i like this almost as much as empire but it's not really empire strikes back and rogue one I, I love it but it's not empire strikes back this is better than empire strikes back this to me is the best thing star wars has ever produced and bodes really well for the future i just want to jump in just quick and say while you're correct that tony gilroy worked on rogue one he cleaned up 
Rogue One. That's what I think is so fascinating is that he was called in because Gareth Edwards just couldn't deliver what Disney wanted at the very end. So there's all this footage, this whole other ending that was originally shot. And Tony Gilroy, you know, well known for what he did some of the, um, the Born Identity movies and he did uh, Michael Collins. Amazing, amazing guy. And he was able to make a, a final product. So what I think is interesting is um, there are echoes of Rogue One in this and obviously characters that carry over, but it really is still a, yet again, a different sensibility even than the majority of that movie. And I love what Gareth Edwards was doing, but I'm much happier in Tony Gilroy's world. And it's not just him, it's, you know, it's his two brothers whose names are not coming to my head right now, but- One of them's John, I don't know who the other one is. John, I think is the editor. So you have yeah. Tony running the show and then three of the episodes at least were written by another brother, the same guy that did Nightcrawler with, um, Jake, with Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. And then Fucking the third- masterpiece. And then the third brother is the one who's editing it. So these guys have this really interesting shorthand with each other, clearly of they know what they want to do and they're absolutely delivering on it. So Jamie, we never got to hear your thoughts on on your own question. What, what did you think in the lead up to this thing? Well, like everyone else, I, I love Star Wars. My first uh, memory of being in the movie theater is with, uh, well, I think I was a baby or very young when my parents took me to see Empire, but I, of course, have no memory. But I was six or seven when Jedi came out. And so I was in the second run theater in my neighborhood growing up with all of my friends every weekend or during the week watching Star Wars. And it was just amazing. I, I still remember like this, the sticky floors in the theater and just, it was just amazing. And so I've, Star Wars is like one of my first loves uh, because it's also my first experience or memory of being in the theater. So I've, you know, big, huge fan of the OT. I do also remember when, you know, the prequels came out and I was there with my friends at, you know, very young, still very young, but very young adults going to see The Phantom Menace on opening day. And I had a great time. And of course, I didn't, for me, the prequel movies just got worse one after the other. Like, um, I thought, okay, like Attack of the Clones was just almost unwatchable. And then Revenge of the Sith was just trying to right the ship of the, the, the previous two. And he was trying to overcorrect so much. It was just ended up in this kind of like, this hodgepodge um, that it just didn't really do anything for me. But my nephew, who's 10, loves it. Revenge of the Sith is his favorite film. So there's that. Um, but then, of course, with the with the sequels, I was really, really excited about them. You know, I, I'll never forget where I was when they announced them, just like knowing that, you know, our three, you know, legacy characters, Leia, Han, and Luke are going to be back together. I was just like, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. And I also was thinking, okay, I'm sure the right people are in place to to treat these characters right, you know. And so I went in there excited. I did enjoy The Phantom Menace. I'm sorry, The Force Awakens. I enjoyed uh, The Force Awakens, but then the the like the fourth time I saw it, the less I liked it. I was like, oh, this just feels derivative. And then everything started kind of crumbling. Last Jedi came out. I loved it. I loved The Last Jedi. I thought it was great. And then Rise of Skywalker just annihilated both of those films it was it was just garbage it was garbage and i was so angry i was so angry i remember getting up in the theater i think this is december 2019 is when it came out right a week later i took all of my star wars toys and i gave them all to my nephew i was like i'm done uh this is over it's over i was so and then knowing that you know what's her name uh carrie fisher had died so 
they could never even bring them all together again. It was over. It was over. The you know the opportunity had been missed, and to mistreat the legacy characters like they did in those movies to me was just unforgivable. Um, but I knew Mandalorian. You know, Disney Plus had come together. A new Mandalorian was coming out. It looked fairly interesting. The first season was a little bit rough, but generally I thought, hey, this is great. But it wasn't really doing it for me. Like it wasn't like rekindling that love of Star Wars. It was fun, but it was like, it's very episodic. It was very kind of rep repetitious. He does the same thing every week. I had fun. It was great. Um, and then of course, Boba Fett came out and I was like, this is just garbage. And I was really disappointed in that. Um, also knowing that they'd gave everything that was cool about Boba Fett to the Mandalorian, to Din. Um, and then... I remember also seeing the, the trailer, the featurette that you're talking about, Christian, or maybe you're talking about Andy, um, from like 2020 when they announced the show and they did a little behind the scenes. Of course, everyone was deep in COVID, uh, but it was exciting. And I thought, okay, this feels a little bit different. There's just something a little bit different about the show. And they were showing like real sets in that featurette with Mandalorian and Boba Fett and even Kenobi. They were showcasing the volume, which now I'm kind of over. Before I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Now they rely on it so much that it just, everything feels small. So Obi-Wan Kenobi rolled around and like everyone else, I just was really disappointed in it. And it was really frustrating. It was just the character that I love. I love Ewan McGregor. He's a great actor. Everything was there for them to do something great, but it was clear based on those scripts that they just didn't, they just kind of half-assed it thinking we can just throw something in front of the screen and people would eat it up. And they did, but they did so with a price uh, or there was a cost uh attached to that um but then again when they uh first saw showed the trailer for cassian or for andor i was like this is it this is the star wars i think i'm looking for but you really don't know because trailers can be great you can see a great trailer in a horrible film in fact i think you see a lot of that these days um so going into it and then seeing that first episode and it it, the show feels like something you would see on hbo it's got that production quality to it that urgency to it that it's hard for these streaming companies or studios to get, to get that like HBO urgent, like important feel. I, it's very hard to kind of wrap around, but Andor did it. And I, I was just in love from it from the first minute. I loved how slow it was. I loved how it was more Blade Runner than almost Blade Runner in some ways that, you know, just the rain and, the, and those those like globes and the people kind of dancing in the globes. It was just like, I just remember watching that first episode and just feeling like this is everything that I want from star Wars. So I, yeah, I, I'm, it has rekindled my love for star Wars. However, it comes with a caveat, which is there's other shows on their way, like uh, the Alkalite and um, I don't know, several other star Wars shows. And I'm nervous that they're just not going to be to this level. And they probably won't be. Um, so it's, Andor is this like amazing thing that's it's a setup for us to be disappointed again because we're not going to get season two for like two years. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's worth pointing out as we kind of get into this tonight that something major that differentiates this from Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan, and Mandalorian is what you were talking to in terms of stagecraft and the and the and the volume. This was almost entirely shot on real sets and sound stages, largely at Pinewood Studios, of course, as aliens and alien three fans will recognize. Uh, and the, I mean, this is almost like too much to even get into for this conversation, but I guess just for the sake of having something to start from going off the set you know, creation thing, the fucking production design in Andor is like 
unbelievably good. Like, holy shit. There are so many moments where I just had to pause and stop. And like, we just had to look at everything that was in the frame because it was so immersive, the sense of, and the costuming, the amount of production detail, the set dressing, the greebling, the, the verisimilitude, which two episodes in a row, I said that in the ways things are arranged, the sense of space, like that prison feels like I know exactly how it's laid out, even though of course it's augmented with lots of digital effects. Um, I, I guess I'll toss it off to Christian because he's sort of a resident expert in these things. But for me, that was, even if the story hadn't been as incredible as it was, that this would be one of my favorites just by virtue of the design alone. Christian, what, what do you have to say about that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I'm part of a, a Facebook group called Star Wars Room Builders, people that want to build a part of their house to look like Star Wars. And there's a it has to be a waiting period, obviously, but then people are posting hundreds of screen caps and zooming in on little details in the background. But one of my favorite examples of this is in the first couple episodes when we meet Cyril, the really uptight security guard, and we see, you know, he, he's had his uniform tailored, which, is, which he mul multiple times over the course of the series does, which is just a wonderful character point. But we see where he works, who he works with, all of their gear and thinking, okay, this is going to be super important to the entire season because they spent all this money to make these things. And then, nope. After that third episode, <laughs> we just don't ever go back there. And so I got worried because of that, that we wouldn't go back to Ferrix after the third episode. And I thought, oh no, because I love Bix and I love Marva and I, and I love B2. And I thought, don't, don't have that be the end. Don't completely neglect these characters. And thankfully, we don't. We come back. And in fact, all the weird little connections or little things that happen at the beginning, like the guy that, that Andor owes money to, Sure enough, in the final episodes, we, we round back and those, those people have another chance to either be good people or bad people. Um, and some people right up front were really a little leery of how much brick there was on Ferrix because that didn't feel Star Wars. I made quotation fingers like you could hear them. Anyway, and by the end of the series, not only is it Star Wars, but they made it integral to who the people of Ferrix are. And that's something else multiple times over the course of the season were introduced to a new planet and then given some little piece of their culture that um, makes it feel so much more real. And in some ways, and it's, this is just a classic Star Wars thing, like how many of us hesitated and thought, maybe I should put Jedi down as my religion on some paperwork or something. But like, there are multiple things that we see in this that resonate, like, wow, that actually makes sense as a belief system. I could see that. Or, or a cautionary tale, like the, the, you know, the, the Chandrillan custom of, of uh, arranged marriages when your children are 14 years old. No, thank you. That is not a good thing. But I love how they introduced it and how we're given that, um, that super creepy uh, rhyme that, that all of the girls are chanting and how well thought out, and that's going to keep being said about this show, but how well thought out everything that they're saying was. It wasn't fucking gibberish. And I feel like we have been spoon-fed so much gibberish in Star Wars since Disney took over. Sorry to put it that way, because I do like what Disney is doing. But there's this sense of, oh, just say something weird. And then Pablo Hidalgo, who's the, the resident um, encyclopedia guy, he'll make an entry in one of the books, and it'll all make sense later. And this show doesn't do that. It really gives you um, just enough uh, meat, just enough to kind of dig, to bite into and then it doesn't have to be superfluous. It just, it just all flows from there. 
And I saw an interview with Tony Gilroy where he was talking about how important it was for him to create these characters because once he knew who these people were, they told him how the story plays out. He didn't have to force characters to do things that don't make sense, didn't make people take their helmets off when they shouldn't or, or go chasing after something they shouldn't chase after because once he had these characters figured out, their motivations completely worked and, and fed into the overall plot. And I bet you some of the really weird things that happen towards the end of the series that make perfect sense were born out of that. He didn't expect Cyril to do this, or he didn't expect, you know, I don't know, any of these characters to do these things, but, but that happens when you create characters that, that live and breathe like that. But all oh, those costumes. For real, I feel like the show, going off of what you said, just, I think it knew who it was to begin with which is why it was able to make all of those decisions um, strongly and confidently. And like you said, I love the way you put that with the brick, because that is definitely something I noticed. I, I remember thinking, oh, wow, brick. I've never really seen that in Star Wars before. But you're right. By the end, you're like, wow, that's that's the people of Ferrix, and that's holy to them. And it's, man... It's it's emotional at the end there when you get made into a brick if you're a prominent citizen. That was beautiful to watch and stirring, I think. But how amazing is it that you get to go? I was just thinking you get to go to all these different planets and all these different cities, and each and every one has such a not a grit, but like a a hardness to the world. Like you can touch it and live there and people have lived there for hundreds of years. Like, I love that we get to spend a lot of time in Coruscant too, but not only do we get to spend a lot of time in Coruscant in the Imperial, um, you know, boardroom, but we also get to spend time with Mon Mothma in her house. Mamtha, I have trouble saying that. <laughs> but we get to spend time in her house with her culture and her family and that the tension that lives there. Every Every episode is just so alive in the world's, I can't even think of a Star Wars movie or show where they have achieved that, where it's just, it's not only is it unpredictable, like we can't decide or figure out the mystery of what's going to happen in this story. But when we do get there, I feel like it makes so much sense because of who the characters are because of the circumstances that they're living under and because of the worlds that they live in and that they want to live in. So each character is just very clearly going toward a goal. And I believe them all, which is not something you can say very easily about Star Wars recently, I think. So that's a big hats off to them. Yeah, I love the the use of the brick because this show literally laid the found like built this show right each character is like a brick in their own way and so masterfully told us who they were from the beginning and created this like you were saying this tangible world around them which every time there's a movie or a show that comes out and they use practical effects I think people rave because we are missing that grounding in reality and from one of the first shots you know that shot when Andor is walking and you see all those like lampposts and just the angles of them? I was blown away from that moment. I was like, this is going to be amazing. Just from the design alone, it's it's incredible, but it all just feels so real. 
Um, I remember reading a couple people, like not a couple, but one of the complaints early on was that it was too slow. There wasn't enough action. And you can't invest in the action if you don't invest in the people first. And they knew that, you know, the great storytellers know that it's always about the people. And then that informs the rest of it. So from the first moment, I was like, I was in, I knew, I knew this was going to be amazing. And then every set just feels so real. Some of it, I mean, most of it is, but so beautifully laid from the mountains and the, you know, the scene where, um, the, where they're basically, they built up, you know, camp. Um, where was that in Iceland? Was that in Iceland? They were in Scotland. Scotland. Okay. Mm. I mean, gorgeous, breathtaking, but then the interior of, you know, Luthan shop, the interior of, like you were saying, each of their households, um, even what you were saying with, um, <clears throat> oh, what's his name? Cyril, like him, like, you know, that, that sort of claustrophobia of his mother's house, God, that mother, <laughs> even she's like incredible in her awfulness, right? Um, there's just, there's a sense of claustrophobia when there needs to be, there's a sense of openness when there needs to be. I, I, I just, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the whole thing. What I love about Andor is how complicated they make the good guys, air quotes, um, where the good guys, so what is it, what is, what does it cost for you to do the right thing? What is it gonna cost Mon Mothma to do the right thing? What what are even that, that small band of rebels who are kind of the build up to where we're going and what we'll see in like A New Hope, whereas in A New Hope, we're like, oh, it's the rebels, yay, you know? But what did that take to get to that space? Spot. What kind of uh, lines were crossed? What kind of morality was was skirted so that they could do what they needed to do? And you see the rebels, or whatever you want to call them, that that Andor in his and the people that he meets up with, and the people that he eventually meets. You see them grappling with what's the right thing to do. And uh, of course, this is a spoiler-filled episode, everyone. So, for instance, he kills Skeen like that, like. He didn't trust him, something was up. He was like, let's take this money and go. He's like, I can't trust this guy, he's gone. And it was shocking to me. But at the same time, when we meet Andor in Rogue One, he kills somebody right away. Um, so he's he's morally ambiguous. But at the same time, like they are using these tactics to encroach upon the Empire's reach. And how do they do that so that it's successful? How do you do that? How do you build a an ethical rebellion. I don't know the, the answer to that question. And clearly you do that with people who are willing to not be ethical, to make ethically unethical decisions, you know, strategically so that they can build something that is, that can take down a, a tyrannical uh, empire, um, which of course is exactly what it is. So, I, but I love that we're getting into this. We're getting into the minds of these characters who are the good guys, Maybe, maybe making not so good guy choices, but doing that the best that they can do. And even like Luthien, who I think is iconic 
in Star Wars now. Like Luthien is, I don't really fully know who he is yet, but I've never been so invested in a character in my life. So I just, I love what they're dealing with. I love what the writers brought to the table and how they're not, this isn't just this black and white, the good guys here, bad guys there. Even like Cyril or Cyril, however you pronounce his name, um, who looks like a baby that Paul Rudd and Dick Van Dyke had. Like, that's what he looks like to me. Um, but I end up rooting for him sometimes because you can see he's, he needs something in his life. He needs some purpose in his life. And, uh, but I end up rooting for him, but he's a, a skis, like he's a scumbag. Like he's, he's an, an awful person. But at the same time, we see his humanity. We see the tension between him and his mother. We see the emptiness in his life. And I, and it makes me feel things for him. You know, what show is doing that aside from like, maybe like the higher tier HBO shows, even in, I mean, I, I guess Mandalorian, I feel things for, and I'm emotionally invested in, but for a star Wars film to be doing what it's doing to me, mind blown. Well, Can I just say quickly, yeah. oh, just going off of what you said really quickly, um, it's it's something that has bothered me since they put out Lucas's, you know, revamped original trilogy, you know, with the infamous um, Han doing that weird neck move to dodge a laser blast. They were trying to make a guy who at that point in time was not a hero. He was actually a selfish kind of scuzzball for lack of a better word. And they're trying to make him into this pure hero from the get-go. But Andor kind of turns that on its head, which makes me so incredibly happy because it shows people who are are doing these pretty awful things and sacrificing not only themselves, but other people who are also fighting for their same cause to that cause. And like, it's bloody and it's dark and I'm so glad that they go there with Cassie and, and with all these other characters because they're brave enough to allow us to accept these people as heroic because of what they stand for and not just because of their actions in every single moment. Sorry to cut you off, Patrick, but I just want to add that. No, you're fine. You don't have to apologize for that. Um, there's, there's like, there's so many things um, that everybody has said that I want to, that I want to get back around to. So I'm going to like choose three things and then I'm going to pass it along. Uh, one of them, first off, is the brick, right? So Marva being made into the brick, obviously being really a beautiful gesture, but it's also the first strike that Brasso throws when the fighting breaks out is he hits somebody with the actual brick, which is, you know, metaphorically apt, but it's also just a beautiful little symbol of like Marva's still fighting with them and she's, you know, spearheading it, which I, I just I just love how there's moments like that throughout the whole show that could, in a lesser context, read as kind of obvious and on the nose, but in this context, it just felt so right and it felt so emotionally gratifying. Uh, going back to Christian, you were talking about how uh, a lot of characters were kind of given latitude to make decisions and a lot of the strange, the idiosyncratic moments in the show come out of that. That I think is, it deserves a treatise to be like a dissertation to be written on it because this show is full of moments like that. It's replete with it. A couple of really quick examples that I just love. So one of them, this might be the last episode, it's Cyril and his former ISB co-soldier, uh, who I can't remember the name. Yeah, they switch hats. And Micah and I, like, we were looking at each other, like, what is going on? And then I'm thinking about it. And I know there's a reason behind it that I'm just going to get the next time I watch the show, but I haven't read any explanations for it yet. And I kind of don't want to, because I really want to figure these things out for myself going forward. There's a lot of moments like that. Another great one that I just love that I was talking with Micah about last night 
is after Perrin and uh, and Mothma are having a fight in the backseat of their limo, which again, of course, is it's it's just a spinner, right? But it could could read as you know a ripoff, but it doesn't because it, it's justified and there's story reasons why it's like that, so it reads really well. They're having this fight in the back of the limo, and um, we're 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 left with like a 15 second shot of Mothma's face as she kind of takes a breath and kind of like sits for a second. And then she turns back and looks just below the camera and like kind of breathes out. And then she turns and looks out the window and it's like 15 seconds of just quote unquote dead space that most other people would have cut. But in this one, it says volumes because we see that she's at this impassable moment coming up and we see her. She doesn't have to tell us that, you know, she doesn't have to be like, whoa, <laughs> like having a side for a second, be like, I wonder what, you know, we're treated intelligently enough to get that, which is, which is amazing for any filmic universe, but especially for Star Wars, which really is largely geared at popular science fiction for for kids and for young adults historically speaking and i think that's that's something that's really great of course having resonance with people of all ages the but growing out of the pulp traditions that it came from um going back for a second to something jamie was talking about so this idea of heroes aren't all heroic and villains aren't all bad that's something that star wars has kind of been skirting the edges of since the very beginning but in every other instance, it's been, at least in the movies and the TV shows, it's been this idea of people are either inherently good or they're inherently bad. And they're being drawn either from one to the other or they're staying where, put where they are by virtue of their nobility or their force awakenedness or their lineage, right? So you have all these people who are born good or born bad or finding out that they're born one of the two and they're sort of being tempted to go to the other side or they're running away from it, right? Which causes a lot of drama. And of course, it goes back to Conrad's ideas and it's, it's you know, very resonant. But what I love about this is it's not that at all. You have like really bad people, like Luthen is a great example of that. Bad in terms of the things he's willing to do for a good cause. And you, the, the show is full of that. And, and I love how in Rogue One, when we're introduced to Andor, we have we all have this moment of, as an audience where we have to decide early on if we're okay with the fact that he just straight up murdered somebody who wasn't going to be able to crawl out of this, you know, wall that they were stuck up against. Like he killed somebody. And that's something where when we see, you know, the first that we see episode one before it was, you know, uh, revised, you know, we see Han Solo as sort of like a badass, like he's cool. He does it because he's sort of like doesn't give a shit. But with Cassian, like we're sort of trained to look at him like that, like he's going to be this new, you know, this new Han Solo character. And he doesn't seem very happy about it, but he also doesn't seem like he has time to care. He's just he's just moving like he's doing what he needs to do. And that in itself is wonderful because, again, it's neither good nor bad. It's in this weird middle space. And very early on in Andor, we're confronted with another situation where he shoots people in cold blood that he might not have had to necessarily shoot. And that just introduces this whole idea that runs through the whole beautiful show, which is like, what are we willing to do for the sake of the right thing? And that, and again, and if that had happened in any universe, whether it be Batman or, you know, any other big popular thing, like that would be a, a very difficult thing to tackle. But for Star Wars in particular, which has made its whole thing about light, literally light and the dark side, to have it so full of this gradation and then to to allow that gradation to sit for so long. Like we, we end the show with Luthen being the most villainous, quote unquote, that he is in the entire series. Right. Which is amazing. Like we end it with him, you know, standing like 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 Jamie and I were talking about 
like Vader on Bespin. Like we see the cloak and we see him saying this, well, the most beautiful soliloquy I've ever heard in any Star Wars property, by the way. Um, you know, and we see him emerging as this guy who will do absolutely anything for the right reasons. And likewise, and then I'll shut up because I, I, I'm going to have to force myself to. Likewise, the Empire, what I love is that we see the Empire not the, so in the sequel trilogy, right? The Empire is portrayed as quote unquote complicated because there are good people within it, right? And, and so we're forced to to this place where we have to go, well, there's people who are conflicted morally about what's going on, but they're either going to flee from it or they're going to kind of continue what they're doing. In this one, we see the empire is full of people of all different stripes. Like there are people who are, I mean, in some cases, completely, you know, Benedict Arnolding on the empire, but there's also a lot of people who are just following orders, right? The banality of evil idea. And there's a lot of people who just sort of want to like you know, climb the corporate ladder and they're kind of going to do what they, what they need to do and not really suffer the consequences because they're not directly interfacing because they're so bureaucratically um, separated from it. And so Cyril is a great example of a character like that, who, you know, with the tailoring comment, which Christian, I knew, I knew you were going to bring that up. I, I loved that. And I loved how the whole time his outfits are always tailored and his hair is always parted. And it's like this constant thing that is signaling to the audience that he's not there because he hates people. Like he's not there because he wants to destroy lives. He's there because he believes in control, right? He's there because to him, the universe is a chaotic environment that can best be dealt with through controlling it. And so the empire really seeks, similar to as we've seen in real life with the Roman Empire, for example, it seeks to standardize, right? And in so doing is eradicating all of these beautiful little, you know, idiosyncratically cultural places like we see in Ferrix, for example. And so that's what we get. We get this idea of chaos versus control, which is so much more exciting than light versus dark, right? And so much more nuanced, I think. We're going to take a break and be right back. We all remember that moment, the first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie, how it stayed with us, comforted us, stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise as well as our warehouse of framerate episodes where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Have any of you watched a movie, I think it was from 67 or 66, called The Battle of Algiers? Yeah, it's, it's a, a classic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's it, with, um. oh, my God, that actor um, who was in some Hitchcock films. I've seen it. It's been a long time, but I know what you're talking about. I love that film. Uh, it's it's about the the French occupation of Algeria and how it finally ended through, a, a, you know, a popular uprising that manifested as, as a, in, in, an insurgency, insurgency. And so I recommend everyone... Don't show it to your kids, but, you know, go watch this movie because I think this was the hidden fortress for Tony Gilroy, the same way that, you know, Lucas uh, took kind of the basic plot line of the hidden fortress for the original Star Wars. This idea of you're seeing the, uh, the French occupation, and even though they're doing terrible things and they're torturing people, they're not necessarily bad. And then you see it from the side of the um, of the rebels, the insurgency, and they're bombing places and they're killing civilians, but they're not necessarily bad. And it was a, it's a very even-handed look at a terrible situation. And I really feel like for Ferrix in particular, that must have been a, um, a touchstone. Also, great score by Eddie Morricone. So oh, yes. Happy. Well, hey, good segue. Let's talk about this score. And let's mm. talk about the fact that it isn't until the end of the final episode that you realize 
that this resonant piece of music that we are told is Cassian Andor's theme is his mother's funeral dirge. This is the music that plays when, when a daughter of Ferex is, is memorialized. And so that resonates so strongly as this idea he's carrying that sound inside him because he watched his action without her realizing he, he causes something to happen in Aldani that ignites in her that spark of rebellion that costs her her life. She dies because of what she does because of her poor health, but she becomes a rebel and he's now following in her footsteps, which I think is wonderful. But how the show builds each episode, adding new instruments or taking away instruments, depending before we get to the end of the season. Patrick, do you want to talk about that just quick? Or Andy and Jamie haven't said anything for a minute. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll hold off my score thoughts, but I, I do have some. They're good though. I'm not. And like... then just okay. Then I have one more quick, quick thing um, about the hats. The, the swapping of the hats. You're never going to get a, a, a real answer because I think that was something that the actress came up with, but um, it has a slightly queer coded aspect to it to me. There's this way back in the day in, in cowboy movies, you would have the, the young hero cowboy and the older cowboy that would often be jealous of the girl. And it would often say things like, Oh, I thought we were going to get a farm together someday. You and I were going to go have a farm together. And there's just something about Linus and Cyril that they're good for each other. They're good. And, and maybe the hats didn't quite fit right. And so they swapped them and they didn't have to talk about it. And this is a show that is, that is openly, there is a, an open lesbian couple in this show that, that doesn't have to be pointed to. It's just there. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily gay, but the, the, the energy in that hat swap is sweet. Okay, I'm done. I do get some queer vibes from Cyril for sure. And I think, I don't know, he's not, he's not effeminate. He's not flamboyant. There's, there's something about when someone's kind of holding themselves in and they're not being, they're not living their true self. You can see it because typically they want control. Everything else is, everything is very controlled. Now I hope he ends up not being gay just because I, unless he has like a, I just don't want a gay bad guy character, but who knows where Cyril is headed. We don't even know. I mean, I don't, I'm not really sure. Um, but I, I, I do love the music. Honestly, I don't remember the music. I don't remember a lot of the music. A lot of it changes. I know, uh, Christian, a few weeks ago, you're like, hey, Patrick, did you notice that the opening music for the for the um, the logo changes every time? And so I've been listening to it. What I've heard, I've loved. Honestly, my favorite music I've heard in the show was Marva's funeral music. I thought that was profound and amazing and moving. And her speech, again, another incredible speech. Like for me, she becomes Mon Mothma iconic level after that speech. Like when I see her again, that actor... Or I see that character like she is like legend, like Mon Mothma is, or I'm sorry, here we go. Uh, Marva is is almost in her own way responsible for the rebellion as Andor, not that Andor is even responsible for it, but I feel like Marva really in that speech set set the the tone. And I was even thinking like if you look at Ferrex and you look at how they are dressed, and then if you fast forward to Rogue One and you see um, the rebels, they're dressed very similarly. Like a lot of those people from Ferex then became the rebellion. So maybe all of them relocated. I'm not really sure. But even like the orange suits, 
You can kind of see elements of how that began on Ferrix, some of the orange colors that they're wearing, some of the, the equipment that they're wearing on, on their chests is reminiscent of what you'd see in the Rebels. So I feel like Ferrix is kind of the birthplace of the Rebellion. I'm not really sure. But I what I did want to touch upon, because we haven't really talked about her in depth, people have mentioned her here and there, but Mon Mothma and that character being deeply rooted in Coruscant, very close to the, to the Empire, being a senator, having to really just be so careful about what she says and what she does. And she wants to help, but she's afraid to help. She wants to do certain things and she's trying to do them strategically. And her her, her cousins is deeply involved. And there's this there's just this tightrope that she's walking. And the film, the filmmaking, I mean, all of it is amazing, but just how they portray her, how the actor portrays that character, trying to maneuver within kind of the throes of possible death. Because if someone finds out, she's done. And probably her family's done too. So she has to put on the face. She's a senator, but she's being watched and always kind of look like she's smiling or enjoying herself, which is what Luthien does or Luthen does when he comes down to Coruscant, kind of puts on that face and that Coruscant face, like, hey, we're all having a good time. But to watch Genevieve O'Reilly play Mon Mothma and you see her eyes trying to figure out, how do I survive this? What's my next move? You see it in her and she's she's frozen in some ways. I I, I can't even, that her performance is amazing in this because it could have just been a throwaway thing. Oh yeah, you know, we're trying to do, but the way it's written, the way it's acted, I've just not seen before. Like it, a lot of this reminds me somewhat of the house, house of the dragon in terms of the urgency behind these characters and how important they make you, they make us feel or how important they are, how important they become in our lives when we're watching the show. And uh, someone had also said that uh, Andor is a little bit like hunger games. And I feel like, which four films that I really, really adore, but Andor is on a different level than those, but it's the idea of, forming a rebellion and what's the cost involved? What's the cost involved in doing the right thing? And that question is being asked to dozens of people and dozens of people all have different answers to that question. And they're all trying to come together to do this thing. And I think the person who's in the most danger is Mon Mothma. So to watch her, to, to watch her go through her journey and see that her family is now in the balance. I, it's just the stuff of legend. Yeah, there's, I mean, you were mentioning the tightrope that the entire time she's walking this tightrope and it's on her face. You know, the stress of the weight of what she is doing, the fact that she has a child, that scene when that offer is sort of out there and her face as a mother, I was, I was stunned by that performance and then gutted, you know, like, what do you do? You know, and I mean, I, I loved her response to that. Um, there was strength, but there was a tremendous vulnerability in that moment. Um, I think she's phenomenal. Um, but I think, I mean, every actor nails it. I am blown away, particularly, I think I've told you this, by the, the women in this. Not just because I'm one. There's, I, I mean, everyone's great, but there's such a weight that they seem to carry. Um, and going back to the scene in Ferrex with the the funeral dirge, 
uh, everybody's face in that from the musicians walking to the side characters that we haven't seen. What struck me was the strength that they all exhibited in unity and the, the power that just walking through, they, there was a sense of like, fuck you empire. You know, like it was like, it was there and I was with them. Um, one of the things I love throughout this is, you know, and Andor says it a few times um, where he's commenting on the, the arrogance of the empire and how they don't even pay attention to us half the time because they underestimate us, right? They don't even care. Um, and you saw that in that last episode where they completely underestimated their strength in that moment. They're thinking, oh, here are these peasants like having this little funeral for this nobody and we're looking for Andor. And they that's one of the things I love about this is they write them off and because they deem them as weak, right? They're nobodies. And the the strength in that unity there. I know I just completely diverged into a different topic, but that's one of my favorite themes about this. I think it's important also to talk about um the writing in this show man i can't think of a a recent example of writing that has consistently topped itself for me um and i know patrick you feel the same we were talking a lot about the speech that luthan gives um to that sort of insider um imperial um spy that they have going but then like in that same episode, Andy Circus just gives the most powerful, and I don't want to call it a motivational speech, but it's basically like a, this is what we're doing to survive and we're going home speech. And I, I don't know, I was like tearing up the entire time because of the writing and because of how powerful it was and because of how much the words make sense. It's, um, Sometimes, you know, when you are watching a show or a movie, you can kind of tell that the writing is not as good when when everything, everyone's voice sounds the same. In this, everybody has their own voice and each character sounds like that character. What Cassian says to motivate people is going to be different than what Kino says to motivate people, than what Luthen says, than what anyone else is going to say. And that's so cool as an audience member to hear. And it just it just brings these characters into focus even more. And going back to what you said, Patrick, about the light, the light in the dark side and the granulation in the gray areas that we have in this, which is so unlike Star Wars movies. Not to say that it's a bad thing that Star Wars movies tend to be light versus dark, but this is so bold of them to be gray. Like, where are we finding ourselves in the gray? And um, just to comment more about the writing, it's just like the gray areas, that's what we are. That's what we're living. This, this Star Wars show has such a clear mirror to, to us, to people who are 
living in the world today who are not inherently bad or inherently good, but we all do both good and bad things. And we do things heroically and we do things selfishly sometimes. And I think that's so fascinating that we get this mirror from a Star Wars um, not, not, I'm not trying to be like pejorative. Uh, what am I trying to say? I'm not trying to like talk down about Star Wars because I revere it so much. But I think it's so cool, unique, and different that we're getting this very realistic meditation about what it means to be a human being from this series. And the writing is just a cornerstone of that. It's it's just so solid and. Man, I like that 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 episode. No way out. Patrick and I were like, "How are there? How are there two amazing soliloquies in it from two different characters?" We were like, just like flabbergasted. <laughs> it's just so mature. It's the most mature Star Wars we've ever gotten. It's for us. It's for the adults. Think about how Cassian takes on a total of three names over the course of the show. Every time he goes to a different place, he reinvents himself. He takes his father's name at one point. And, you know, so that, that requires a certain amount of um, the audience paying attention and listening. And then, and I, I fell for this, um, Vel and Luthen's Luthen's assistant, uh, they meet in, on Coruscant, uh, like episode four, and they both have different hairstyles and I did not recognize them. Like, who are these characters? There's new people. Anyway, I want to say um, my kids were rooting for Dedra, the, um, the Imperial officer lady. They were rooting for her so strong for about half the season. And then they were getting so conflicted because she ends up doing more and more terrible things. And the final straw was she'd already tortured Bix. She'd already tortured that shop owner. It's when she, they've captured somebody else from you know, there's that whole other subplot with a, the, a separate cell of rebels that we never actually physically meet. She sends the interrogator and she says, I'll call in for it. And we're like, oh my God, it's a Zoom torture. <laughs> she performs a Zoom torture. She's terrible, <laughs> but she's well-written and she's interesting. And they all are. And in fact, Andor is possibly the least interesting person on the show. I want to know more about Brasso. I want to know more about Bix. I definitely want to know more about um, Andy Serkis' character, whose name just went out of my head. You know, Kino I don't Loy. Kino, Kino Loy. Don't give me a Kino show. Please don't. But know that I, he lives in my imagination. He can't swim. Oh my God. Is he gone? I don't know. I don't know. But it, what a gift. What a fucking gift this show is. Yeah, agreed. Again, there's there's 700 comments that I want to respond to, but I'm going to go all the way back to the score comment from 30 minutes ago. Um, I think Nic Nicholas Bratel did just an astonishing job with this. I have to say, though, it took me a while because I loved it in the beginning. And then by episode four, I had a list of complaints that were starting to build up. And I was like, Micah, I don't know. I have some things I'm complaining about, like having Roman numeral, having, you know, uh, traditional like numbers, like we see them on, on, you know, what look like LED displays on tablets, th things like things like that. As a Star Wars nerd, it kind of bothered me in the past when people haven't taken it seriously. Th things like that. I was sort of like, I don't know if I really like this. Uh, and then the music also like that one theme was really the backbone of like every single musical cue in the show for four or five episodes. And I was like, this chord progression is getting real old. Like I'm really, I get the idea that it's going to be a Dorian descending chord progression and it's going to happen again. 
So I was like, Micah, I don't know. And then I was like, I can't understand what they're saying. And I can't remember who these characters are called. And I forgot if Clem was the dad or not. Like there's just this, this sort of this running list of things. So he turned the subtitles on for one thing, which really helped a lot in that regard. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to stick with it. Cause there's still things I like about it. And then of course, by episode five, I was like, I forgot any of complaints that I had because all these things started to make sense. And they started to, to like, you got to see a sense of the planning that was going on and why that theme was so repetitive. Like you're talking about Christian, because ultimately that's kind of the point, right? And and now in a less artful way, that's what Michael Giacchino was trying to do with the Batman theme, which that was just hitting you in the head with a sledgehammer by repeating two chords over and over again. This one, it's a more lyrical theme that's more adaptable, but it is immovable. And that's kind of the idea is that it's this, this heartbeat surging within this growing rebellion, which I have to say though, I don't know, I, I kind of disagree a little bit with Jamie on this. To me, Ferrix is not the star. It's not the heart of the rebellion or anything. What I actually love about it is that we're consistently reinforced with this idea that this is just one of many things happening around the galaxy in simultaneity. Some of them are coordinated, some of them aren't, but that there's all of these uprisings happening and that we get to sit with one of them for just a little while, which I think is just just such a treat, right? That we don't have to know everything that's going on. Uh, going back to Kino Loy for a moment. Um, yeah, Andy Circus, like he's such a great actor, and it's so easy to forget because he gets, you know, we think of him as just this mocap guy, and of course he was Snoke already in the sequel trilogy. So we kind of, you know, we just think of him as that. And then getting to remember what a great actual actor he is, just as a physical presence in this, was so great because as soon as he comes on the screen, similar to Stellan Skarsgård, I was like, okay, these these are kind of expensive stars. Like they're not going to be here just to like play kind of one note roles. Like I'm excited to see where they go. And his Kino's journey is like so full of gradation and it's so much slower than you want it to be, which is what's great too. Like there's so many times where he doesn't do the right thing yet because he's, he, there's all these things holding him back that he needs to fight through. And we have to like, let him do that. So that by the time you get to that incredible speech that he gives over the PA system uh, in episode 10, which is the best episode of the series. And I'll fight anybody who argues with me on that. By the time we get to that point, it feels like this, this, just this like unleashing this like incredible torrent of emotion comes out. And so much of the show is that so much of the show, like Andy was alluding to earlier, it's, it is deliberately slow for a number of reasons. I think obviously one of them is characterization. You know, another one is world building. Another one is the fact that they have 12 episodes per season, which is brilliant. But I think a lot of it is to pace it properly because similarly to alien, right? We get, and when you watch alien for the first time, you're kind of wondering like what the fuss is about. Like, this is just, is this some like cinema verite space movie where like people are just doing shit. And then you, you know, wait for almost a third of the movie before anything really happens. And then it's just a consistent acceleration towards the end more or less with, with Andor, like it is, it is genuinely slowly paced, not in a bad way, but it is deliberately slowly paced for quite a while in the beginning, because we're getting to see the threads as they start to get set in place. And then that way, by the time we get halfway through the series, as those threads start to converge and tie into each other, it's like, it's this amazing accelerative feeling that is, I think everything that long form storytelling should be. And I think a lot of shows make this mistake. And I think, I think the two that we've already been shitting on tonight, Boba Fett and um, Obi-Wan are great case studies in this where they basically just try to stretch a movie out for a while, you know? Um, but Andor is, is many different shows over the course of its runtime over the course of its 14 or however many hours it is. It, it changes shapes so many times it's mercurial and then that way, by the time it gets where we all know it's going, right, it goes from Shawshank Redemption to, you know, the great, the great battle siege scene, right? 
then then we feel like we've arrived at what the show has been the whole time, which is this exploding heart, right? Which is this incredible emotional explosion. But it took for the right reasons so much time to get to that point. And I think that's part of why it sticks with us. Um, and uh, and, and just last thing I'll say is, you know, all of the side characters who we don't get that much time with in this, like Kino, like Christian was saying, or Brasso or people like, you know, Bix, like these characters who we just get kind of, barely any time with in any real way we don't need any more than that because we get the sense that those characters have been there all along and that those characters continue long after the credits roll and that i think is so hard to do in any kind of filmmaking and it's such a testament to this particular show that basically all of the characters are like that and dedra is a great example of that right like she's a character who we go through just like just like we were just talking about uh, that whole mercurial journey with also because we see her getting you know talk getting mansplained to and getting not listened to and we're like wait well she she does have a point like hey listen to her but she has a point and then we're like uh, maybe don't listen to her because she does have a point wait a minute wait what am i what am i what i want to happen so by the end of the movie we've gone through that journey with her too and then and then that way when we see her during the the you know battle on ferrix like we feel obviously like she needs to be defeated but we also see her as a human who arrived at that moment. And it's it's a really complicated thing to feel. Like when Cyril, you know, saves her or finds her, we feel this almost sense of relief for a moment. And then it's like, what the hell does it even mean? And again, this is such a testament to Kyle Soler playing Cyril that that moment is still even more complicated than ever because there's almost there's almost like a romantic overtone to it or something. There's something obsessive in the way that he's looking at her. And it just feels like the moment is just exploding with, with, with something. And the whole show is that. The whole show is it's like just exploding with these things that we can't put a label on yet. And I fucking love that. And also Kyle Soler is from Connecticut. So what up, Nutmeg State? Okay, oh, I thought he was up. British. For whatever oh, he's reason. American. Interesting. What I also love too about uh, the bad guys, quote unquote, with the show is it the show takes you, the writers take you on this journey where it we're not just seeing their face. We're not just seeing the you know the stormtrooper, you know, which is kind of like the bad guy, and they're just kind of there. We're they're taking you so far deep into the journey of these people that you end up rooting for them, and also. Like there's the the quote, no one joins a cult. Everyone joins a good thing. So for Dedra and for Cyril, they're just doing what they think is right. They are they're not a part of a bad thing. They're a part of something that uh, brings order to the galaxy. I'm sure that they believe uh, something that probably uh, in its tyranny, even though they wouldn't even call it tyranny, they would. They're feeding people, they're feeding planets, they're taking care of things, they're making sure that, you know, everything is in order, because order, you know, even the Empire becomes the first order, I think, by the time we get to the sequels. Um, but to show that perspective, to show the perspective of people who are embedded within the Empire, not as just bad guys, as people, that just doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen. Even in some of the best shows, it doesn't happen to humanize to humanize the 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 enemy, and I don't wouldn't even consider Daedra. I mean, she's an enemy, but I don't see her as fully an enemy. I see her as this full person who's made some decisions that are probably gonna come back to haunt her. You know, of course, them uh, torturing. Uh, I think it's it's Andor's. I don't know Andor's friend or whatever. That's you know that's a a, a pretty big deal. But just to see Cyril or Cyril and Daedra as full people that I can understand, I, that is a gift. 
that is a gift that I do not see in, in even again, some of the best shows out there. And uh, this, this show is the litmus test for me in terms of star Wars. And I know I can't even, I can't even approach the next star Wars series expecting this level of, of, of detail and planning. And we've all been talking about this for months now in terms of, or for years now in terms of like with the last sequel film coming out, like, and then knowing that they didn't really have a plan. They just kind of made it up as they went along and seeing people in groups and on social media and in conversation talk about, they didn't have a plan. Star Wars didn't have a plan. Of course it ended up like this. And to have people professionals come in and say, we just don't only have a plan. We have some of the best writers in the business and we're going to tell you a story like you've never seen before. I don't even, I, I, uh, that I am a happy man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about the bad guy, you know, like the quote unquote bad guy, Cyril, we have a scene with him eating cereal and his mom's lecturing him on his future. Where did we see that before? With Luke drinking blue milk. You know, we see the the human side of the, these these people when before, you know, in like in the black and white world of Star again, I love Star Wars. You you just see the bad guys doing bad things, right? Like that's what they do, and you don't see them in this other world. So there is that nuance and that, oh, right now he's being a normal person or right now I can identify with what he's going through. Um, it's just so lovely to see because you are conflicted the entire time you're watching this. Um, and it switches, you know, like you're just like, there are days we love our best friends and there are days they drive us insane. And that's, you know, that's humanity. It's fabulous. And all the side characters, like you were saying, you know, Bix, uh, B2. I mean, you know, they they make you fall in love with a robot all over again. Another one, another droid that you just can't help but love. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's just so human, I think, more than any other Star Wars show has been. I think that with each Star Wars show, it's almost like there's a, a, a series of these sliding scales where you have, you know, um, the fantasy level and, and Filoni is all in on these, these fantasy tropes. And then you have your, your, um, your cameos of who from the real world, you're going to sneak into your Star Wars. And then you have, you know, your, your World War II reference, like, is this going to be referencing the, you know, the the world of the 1940s and i love that this show took those first two and stood them the whole way down to zero like no 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 comedians no famous musicians no flea and then took that third one and and just broke it right off the end like yes everything about this resonates with europe and world war ii africa and world war ii just amazing and so going forward Obviously, there's a place for what Dave Filoni brings and what uh, John Favreau brings. And Filoni is on a, a one-man mission to take everything he ever did in a cartoon and make it live action. That seems to be, that will be how he'll spend the rest of his life. And so when it comes to Ahsoka Tano, I'm fully expecting we're going to go back to the fantasy. And third season of Mandalorian, they've already teed up with that little cameo on Boba Fett. It's this bullshit about you have to go to the caves of mandalore and bathe your whatever to to regain your honor and i just 
it drives me nuts because I don't like fantasy in that sense, but that's all right. That's, that is still Star Wars. And that's the beauty of this. I hear the only criticism I've heard of Andor is some people feel it isn't Star Warsy enough, but I think that you can't be narrow in your definition. What all shows going forward, and we got to give them a little bit of lag time because they got to catch up. They got to take their notes and start filming new stuff. Going forward, we need this quality of writing. You can have your fantasy, but you better write something that is, that is worth it. And I'm, I'm just thinking of the difference between in um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. First of all, every planet he goes to, he's wearing his fucking Jedi robes and he's got his lightsaber hanging off his belt. And it was like the breadcrumbs, like the, the audience is going to get lost if, if Obi-Wan doesn't look exactly like iconic Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, no, we won't get lost. On this show, the costuming told us who these characters were, how buttoned up Mon Mothma was, or how many layers different people were wearing. But when Obi-Wan Kenobi sneaks young Leia out of an imperial prison for Jedi under his jacket, fuck you. That's so stupid. I don't ever want that in Star Wars again. And, and that it was shot on the volume makes it 10 times worse because you can't even touch anything. Nothing, nothing exists. The only thing that was close to the volume on uh, on Andor was out of Luthen's front windows. You know, she, uh, Mon Mothman would come in through the doorway. That whole cityscape was one gigantic LED screen. And similarly, outside of, of her apartment window. That's good. That's a fantastic use because you wouldn't want blue screen or green screen lines around people. But keep it to that. We can shoot in amazing locations. We can build amazing sets, please. But again, it's that writing. And don't have any more comedians. I'm sorry. No more comedians in Star Wars unless they're legitimately committing to a character. That's, that's the biggest sin for me of The Mandalorian. Is It's like John Favreau has 100 comedian friends and he's just going to keep sprinkling them in. All right, I'm done. What do you guys notice about Mon Mothma and her family? Something that I picked up on uh, the way they present themselves. Is there anything you notice about them? I should say how they dress. So I'll just give you that. With the robes? The little yeah, top knot? No, but they look similar to Jedi. They have the Obi in front. Mm, it's mm. tied. And I felt like it was some type of, so I don't know what, I, maybe it's just a coincidence, which I don't believe because, and maybe it's not the kind of coincidence I'm thinking it's going to be or or the writing that I'm thinking it's going to be, but it feels very tied to Jedi. Like maybe in their family, it just reminds me so much of Jedi, of, of the Jedi robes. Um, and I, I, be like this can't just be a coincidence that they that they're dressed similarly especially her husband like is her husband did he used to be a jedi like their their robes are so similar i, I mean i don't know i don't i i don't know where it's going to go but uh, that was just something that i was picking up on that was uh interesting to me we see two other men though for, that are also chandrillan there's the the character that ben miles plays and there's the gangster did you feel that their robes i i'm, I'm having trouble less so Less yeah. so, their robes were more kind of drapey, whereas Mon Mothma and her husband and her daughter, they have their robes on and are robed over, but an obi sash in the middle and then a tie in the middle of that, which is very Jedi. I've not seen that since, but I mean, it's also Coruscant and it's a convergence of so many different um, people from so many different planets that it's probably just a coincidence. But uh, I, 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 knowing Tony Gilroy and his attention to detail i just feel like this is a not this isn't for any reason now maybe it's not the reason that i think but i just thought it was something interesting i want mon mothma's wardrobe there it's incredible <laughs> <laughs> the sleeves 
with layering and she looks amazing in it i have to say what a gift for her you know because they they brought her in on revenge of the sith for just that little quick scene that got then got cut out of the movie which led to coming back to rogue one which while it's amazing it's very short and it's pretty much try to stand exactly in the same pose as the actor from return of the jedi and so i just oh, i want to know what her reaction was when suddenly the script shows up at her door and it's like hey guess what here's a fully fledged character with an amazing array of real world problems that you get to play out and like jamie or patrick was saying like the Patrick, you're saying this, you know, the, the, the way that we see the emotions play across her face. Would you guys agree in the final episode, she's lying to her husband about, she's setting him up, this whole gambling thing. That's just a, a story she's telling for the benefit. She knows that her driver is spying on them. Yes. So she's set, setting up the groundwork. Because I've seen people who are like, that's so weird. I wonder why they mentioned that. Like, no, she made it up. And, and her, her shitbag husband probably does have a gambling problem, probably is doing far worse. And is just happy that that's the only thing that she supposedly found out about him. I love him, by the way. I love to hate him. He's amazingly just like this, this worm. Ah. Yeah, she's Especially absolutely setting him up. Yeah, yeah. I don't but think that's in doubt. I don't think she's so setting either. up her husband. Like, but I think she's not really setting up her husband. She's probably giving the giving driver him. cause. Yeah. So, oh yeah, yes. she seems troubled. She's troubled because of her husband, yeah. even though it's but not it's, true. She's deflecting. It's a, yes, but it's the money yes. issue. She's drawing she's, attention. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Could it be that it's oh, like she's giving yes. them the money. This breadcrumbs? Like, oh, yeah. four hundred thousand yes. or whatever the sum was is missing because my husband gambles. Yep. But then That's the best part is. is that is that then her husband parent is like, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, I I promise you I wasn't going to do it again. I, <laughs> I just it, it's just so it's, it's so believable. And 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 you have Mon Mothma who is like the most incredibly articulate like just powerful presence and then this husband is just like such a fucking shitbag but it's an arranged marriage you know like in Chandralan culture so like it makes total sense that she's just like stuck with this moron but then you have also Tay from her childhood right I think that's the name right Tay the banker who uh I can't remember the actor's name but is just also fantastic ben Miles. In this. ben Miles thank you yeah Ben Miles um and they have such great chemistry and mm -hmm. the scene the first scene where they're together in the uh at the banquet that's another moment where it's similar to those two soliloquies in episode 10, where I was like, oh, my God. I was like, Micah, how fucking good is this writing when they're talking about the nature of the problem and the whole thing is in double speak because they're being observed and you're just following it along. And it's like a 12 minute scene of two people talking in riddles to each other. And she's trying to, to basically get out what's really going on without actually letting him know what's really going on and talking well, about also choreographing trust. how he yep. has to go through the room. Yeah. Smile. Okay, yeah. now drink right, your drink. Right. Exactly. Literally giving him the and, angles to turn to. Yeah. And he's trying to warn her off. He's saying like, ah, I'm, I'm a little more yeah. political than you are. You know, like, just don't go there. Don't go there. Yep. And she's like, no, oh, no, go there. Go there. Yes. And, and she's, and she's <sighs> like, she's like, where, where you are, I'm beyond. Like, she yeah. basically like tells him in that moment. And then we see her have a confidant. And then we see Mon Mothma. Because I didn't even pick up that it was Mon Mothma for a couple episodes. Like, I, I, they were saying her name, but they're saying so many things. And then I was like, oh, my God, that actually is Mon Mothma. <laughs> of course, Genevieve Riley is also in Rebels, which which I really like a lot for people who have are looking for some Filoni content 
that's very good i think star wars rebels is right up there so like but i i didn't even like quite recognize her from even rogue one after until like a little while of watching it i was like oh my god actually that's that's actually mon mothma because she has a different haircut and everything but uh but in those moments those quiet moments where she's conducting politics while she's also conducting all these other things they're just masterfully done and same thing with i mean luthan i mean it's like man we gotta wrap but like but stellan skarsgård holy shit is such a good actor when and he watching puts the Luthen, wig on, like, yes, oh, and he's just doing these, you yeah. know, yeah, 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 yes. character. Yeah. That was he's the moment. He's the character. It's that's, amazing. That's when Stellan Skarsgård was like, "Yes, sign me up." You know, yes. I, I get to, I get to do these multiple roles. Ugh. And to do it so convincingly, but then again, like all of his scenes for the most part, until we see him in his Vader investment moment, are when he's, uh, you know, he's doing the double speak thing again. He's like talking in riddles for the most part. We, there's a couple right. moments where we see him being able to kind of reveal who he really is. But for the most part, it's people coming into his antiquity store and being shown around while he's actually taught conducting business. And so much of the show happens like that. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, I, I, you know, my soapbox is going to break because I'm standing on it so much, but in terms of exposition, like the, which I think is the great enemy of good writing, the way that exposition is delivered in this is so interesting because it's all exposition you have to work for, right? Yes. Mm. Just like the Bourne movies, I think are a great, a great similar example from Gilroy's past on that. Part of why they're so exhilarating to watch is because we're picking the story up and putting it together given all these kind of clues to look at and it's not clues in the way christopher nolan gives us clues where it's like you know a plus b is going to equal c at some point and this one it's like we're making sense of all this information and we're putting it together so that by the time the show is pretty irrefutably about something very specific in the last the back half we know but we've actually like worked to get there with the characters and and that i think is part of why the writing is so great too oh and forced like- just quick just quick Oh my God, is in it too. Yeah, but it, but it's almost like a redemption of Sagarera because Forrest Whitaker suffered from reshoots in in Rogue One, and it's just sort of a an, 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 his his performance isn't perfect, and it's a it's a he's a stumbling block for the characters to get to the good part, and that is annoying because then you're like get 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 beyond this guy. So to have him here, where he's he isn't so lost in his paranoia, he isn't. You know, he's still a, a force and he has wonderful dialogue and two tubes is there next to him. And oh, man, oh, I love this. Show. I agree. It's more subtle. It's a more subtle performance this time, too. Saw Guerrero is one of my least favorite parts of Rogue One. You're right. He does get to redeem himself. Yeah. Not and that he, he also, was like horrible, but go ahead. He's also on Rebels. That's another, you know, and Dude, Rebels, Rebels is, is fucking good. Watch oh, that. Really, People haven't really watched good. Rebels. And it um, it's set in almost the same time period as Andor. So while it's, you know, it's a cartoon, so it's more uh, dramatic in a lot of ways, you are still getting this, the the fomenting, the fomenting of a rebellion, you know, to quote Linus. We do have to wrap this up. But we do. We're going to have to have another one when the, when the other season comes out. Oh, my God. Yeah, when we're all older. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last thing I want to say, though, is, and I just have to leave off on this moment, with when Mon Mothma is in that party, it's like she, it's a chessboard, and she's the queen. Like she's the the queen, you know, and she's maneuvering in and out, trying to be careful, trying not to make the wrong move. I've just, again, uh, it's to what Patrick said. It's masterful. It is masterful to see this in a Star Wars film. I want more. Amen. We're gonna have to force ourselves to wrap with that. We we, we might be back with a part two before the next season comes out. We'll see how that goes.
<laughs> but um, but for our patrons out there listening to this, this is the last thing you will hear before we have our film shoot coming up in a week. Basically, as I'm recording this tonight, a week from today, we'll have many of the people involved in it here at our house getting ready, doing set construction. So thank you for your support as you've helped us down the long road to getting this thing made. We are so excited and we are so excited also to not be paying out of pocket for everything for once because we actually have the support of our amazing patrons and you if you're listening to this are one of them so thank you so much for your support we have some new ones that we'll give shout outs to on the full shows our release schedule might be a little weird for a while we haven't quite figured that out yet just because we're going to be doing all this traveling but um we're going to have a lot more content coming too so lots to look forward to thank you everybody thanks for coming on micah andy of course thanks for having me yeah thanks not, not me Mm. (laughs) 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 thank you guys so much if you would like to listen to all of our reviews go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support and sign up to become a member our membership monthly subscriptions start at just two dollars a month for those of you who already support us via patreon we thank you